All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the JuntoCast, a podcast presented by the bloggers at earlyamericanists.com. I'm Ken Owen, an assistant professor of colonial and revolutionary America at the University of Illinois at Springfield. And today we return from our summer hiatus. I'm joined by three other Junto bloggers. Michael Hattam spent his summer on the run from a Delanceyite mob that tracked him down in New York City. Um, it's good to have you here, Michael. Uh, thank you, Ken. You know, the, the drama isn't over. I still have Chris Minnie outside my house burning me an effigy every night. And Michael is a PhD student and teaching fellow at Yale University. We're also joined by Roy Rogers, who spent his summer on a botanizing trip in upstate New York. Roy, can you respond to Federalist allegations that this proves you wish to run for president in 2016? I can neither confirm nor no d- deny your accusations, Ken, but I'm glad to be here. Roy is a PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center and a writing fellow at the New York City College of Technology. Finally, we're joined by Mark Boonshoft, who was last seen entering a congregational church, but unfortunately he got in at the start of the sermon and has only just been allowed to leave. Um, Thanks for coming here straight afterwards, Mark. Thanks, Ken. Today on the podcast, we're going to be doing the first in an occasional series, revisiting some classic works in the field of early American history. The idea of each episode will be to break down the argument of the book, look at the questions that it raises, and discuss how well the argumentation of the book has stood up in light of more recent historical writing. And to kick off this series, we're going to be looking at Bernard Balin's book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. Mark, I believe you have a few things to say about the author and the origins of the publication. Thanks, Ken. Balin was a professor of early American history at Harvard, and he had previously worked on colonial education and merchants in late 17th century New England. The majority of the book we're discussing comes from a lengthy introductory essay to a volume of revolutionary-era pamphlets that Balin edited for Harvard University Press in 1965. By 67, he had expanded that into a book form, and that became the ideological origins of the American Revolution. And why was the book's argument considered so important at the time that it was published? Well, I think Balin's book was important because it challenged the reigning progressive interpretation that had focused on socioeconomic motives and class conflict in understanding the coming of the revolution and also the Constitution. In the process, these progressive historians had very much relegated the role of ideas, arguing that they were largely window dressing, uh, used to mask the economic motives of the participants. And Balin's book uh, really put ideas back at the forefront of the discussion on the causes of the American Revolution. And I think what's particularly important there is that although other historians had challenged the idea that class conflict was the sole factor that explained the conflicts of the revolution. I'm thinking there of authors like Forrest MacDonald or Daniel Burstyn. Uh, 
their arguments were either very specifically geared at repudiating the arguments that had been put forward by the progressive school, or they were situated in a much longer discussion of national character. Whereas with Balin, it was focused very tightly on the idea that those ideas themselves were something that were particular to the moments of America's national founding. And Balin was very interested in decentering the relationship between the American Revolution and the Enlightenment. One of the, I think, key contributions that he makes is instead of saying the American Revolution was an Enlightenment project of natural rights and all those things that you still hear many times in political science classes today or uh, from commentators on television, uh, instead, Balin points to an earlier uh, school or, or generation of thinkers that historians come to call Republicans who had very little to do with the Enlightenment and rather had a different set of concerns than most of the previous scholarship had uh, pointed out. And I think at the same time, it's also important to remember that this is published in 1967 and historians that would consider themselves part of the new left had been taking progressive history and in some ways pushing it even more to emphasise conflict and to emphasise an importance of activism within wider society. And one of the reasons that Balin's argument is so important is because it was really controversial to be pointing to the idea that the revolution was caused not because of necessarily a revolutionary fervour in terms of an analogue to 1960s revolutionaries, but rather a much more conservative form of revolution that had its genesis in a longer tradition of political thought. Yeah, that's actually a very good point, Ken. And I'll take a sort of page from E.H. Carr, who, who wrote that before you study the history, you should study the historian to, to primarily understand the context in which they're writing. And the progressive historians were writing during the progressive and New Deal eras of the first half of the, the 20th century. And Balin, of course, is writing his book in the 1960s. And the essay the book was derived from originally was entitled The Transforming Radicalism of the American Revolution. And that gets changed within two years by 1967 to the ideological origins of the American Revolution. And there's something very revealing, I think, about the name change uh, about Balin personally, if not the way he changed how he was viewing these pamphlets and the Republican language in them. And I think that was doing no small part to the events occurring on college campuses at the time and his reaction to them, namely his uh, profound uncomfortability uh, with what radicalism had come to mean by 1967. So in repudiating radicalism in the way that Balin does in that change of title, it emphasises the importance of two terms in particular for Balin's argument, one of which is ideology and the other of which is the idea of republicanism. So perhaps we can talk a little bit at this stage about what exactly it is that Balin means when he's talking about ideology. Right. Well, for Balin, ideology isn't just a set of ideas. It's a, it's a coalescence of various strands of thought 
uh, one of which is republicanism, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, that end up providing a, a framework and a meaning for behavior. So uh, that is to say that, that people use these ideas to make sense of events occurring around them and then also to justify their reactions to those events. So methodologically speaking, it's important to understand that Balin is not arguing that ideas in and of themselves are directly causing events, but that ideas are central to how people are understanding events that are occurring and central to how people are deciding to react to those events. And so effectively, the argument briefly summarized is that the, the primary set of ideas informing uh, revolutionary ideology came from radical English Whig Republicans, dating as far back as uh, Sidney Harrington um, and Milton in the 17th century, and uh, writers like Trenchard and Gordon uh, and Joseph Addison in the 18th century. And these writers, again, to, to briefly summarize and oversimplify, um, argued that uh, liberty and power were effectively engaged in a sort of zero-sum struggle, and that people were necessarily corrupted by power, and therefore it was the duty of virtuous citizens to be constantly on guard against abuse of power, uh, whether that was you know, the tyranny by an individual or conspiracy and corruption by a group of people. And Balin argued that it's these ideas that shape the way colonists understood uh, actions by the king and parliament during the period of imperial reform uh, and crisis of the 1760s and 1770s. And makes, in making that point is essentially arguing that there is a particular cultural inheritance that the colonists in North America have on the eve of the revolution that feeds back to much earlier British traditions. Well, the, the, the progressive interpretation would state that class conflict is much more inherent and that it's tied to immediate material contexts rather than a broader cultural inheritance. Yeah, that's right. And it's perhaps important to note that the, the, the root of Balin's ideas for that transatlantic connection comes from the work of Carolyn Robbins in the 1950s, where she sort of explicated this Republican ideology and described these English writers as uh, commonwealth men, right, a term derived from the uh, English civil wars. And what Balin did was to, to recognize its influence um, in the revolutionary pamphlets and to argue that they played a central role in how colonists were perceiving the actions of the king, the parliament, and the ministry. Yes, and this is clearly a long-lasting um, impact that Balin writes about. He cites pamphlets that go right back to Molesworth's account of the state of Denmark, as well as Trenchard and Gordon's Cato's letters from the um, 1710s, 1720s, that there has been this long genesis of ideas that give a certain logic to rebellion when the events of the imperial crisis strike. And whereas historians of a more progressive bent would cite this as being a response to the particular economic stimuli of the growth of the colonies that's, and the development of mercantile interests and such like that had come to 
take its particular shape in the 1760s. Balin's is much more of a almost hegemonic ideology that shapes the way that people understand events. Right. I think one of the key things about this book is the coherence how every pamphlet, every influence is basically a piece of a larger puzzle. And when that puzzle's finished, there's a clear, coherent picture that explains the logic of the American Revolution. Um, for Balin, there's, at the end of the day, very little contingency. It's very much these set of ideas that the colonists embraced had a logic to them. And once that logic started going, it wasn't going to stop. And... I think that's one of the reasons why the book remains very compelling uh, in the early 21st century, but also one of the reasons that sort of feedback loop that Balin, in many ways, is uh, promoting through the book uh, is also one of the reasons why it's gotten some of the sharpest criticism. I think at this point we need to come back to the other term of Balin's identified earlier, uh, that of republicanism, because we've talked quite a lot here about how Balin sees the colonists having a certain set of beliefs that means that they interpret events in the way that they do, but we haven't really explored exactly what Balin believes those beliefs to be. And essentially for Balin, I think... He defines republicanism as essentially a set of ideas about the distribution of power within society. And this is something that has a heritage from debates that took place in Britain at the time of the Civil War and the time of the Glorious Revolution, when the power of the king became shared with the idea of crowning parliament, but also inspired an opposition to the prerogative powers of the crown that suggested that there was a danger in any society that if there wasn't a jealous guarding of power, if there wasn't sufficient checks on the way that governments were able to appoint officials, were able to draft and execute laws, that without some degree of popular control, it was possible for those within power to use their authority for corrupt ends. And therefore, society had to watch those in power like a hawk to make sure that those corruptions and looking after narrow interest rather than power being distributed for the good of an entire society um, to make sure that those problems didn't come to a head. I think these are all really good points, uh, Ken. I think you did an admirable job summing this up. Uh, but I want to sort of tie this back to some of the things uh, Roy was saying. Um, and I think that Balin's attempt to sort of make this uh, kind of hegemonic interpretation rests on a his sense of colonial politics writ large and in every colony. And he has another book, uh, The Origins of American Politics, which came out around the same time, in which he kind of spells out his thinking about colonial politics and even goes colony by colony at one point in the middle of the book. But basically, what he comes to is that, to, to conclude, is that these Republican ideas take on particular salience in the American colonies just because of the, the way the colonies were governed. Um, there was a, a healthier sense of self-government and things like this that were that was absent in much of England. And so they are, by 
custom, Americans or colonists by custom are are more jealous of jealously guarding of their liberty. And so these ideas are, are English ideas and floating around the Atlantic, but they take on a particular salience all throughout British North America because of lived experience. And so this also goes back to some of Michael's points about what ideology was uh, for Balin. Agreed. And I think that's where some of his methodology becomes particularly important as well. I mean, we've alluded to his source base being drawn primarily from revolutionary pamphlets. And in the early part of ideological origins, Balin makes a stirring defence of these pamphlets as the main way in which we can view the way that an entire society was thinking because of the way that they were distributed, because of the role that they played within society, that people had access within the social structure of society to a heavy amount of literature um, and pamphlet literature. Now, I think further historical work has cast some questions um, both on how those pamphlets were chosen and on whether they actually did have the distributive um, effect that Balin claims for them. But within Balin's argument, these are things that everyone is reading and these are things that with which every colonist would have been conversant. Any listener who picks up this book after listening to the podcast and reads uh, uh, about the pamphlets, uh, Balin is a, uh, very interested in a question that's uh, very weird to 21st century pe people, many even 21st century historians and graduate students, where the prevailing view of these pamphlets in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s were that they were primarily propaganda that they were basically the 18th century version of a, you know, 30-second television ad. Uh, and historians didn't really take them seriously on their own intellectual terms. And one of the goals of Balin's uh, collection of pamphlets, which we've already talked about, and this book, is to really, at the end of the day, to rehabilitate the... Uh, historical standing of the pamphlet literature that survives from the 18th century. And that is, I think, remains today the strongest accomplishment of this book, where historians who have massive amounts of qualms with Balin's arguments, uh, the way he deploys the pamphlet evidence, still has to take the pamphlets much more seriously and much more on their own terms than anyone did before Ideological Origins and uh, Balin's collection of pamphlets. Right. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, that's, that's an important thing to point out, but we should be a bit wary of solely attributing a return to ideas to Balin. In the 1950s, Ed Morgan and his work on the Stamp Act crisis had gone back to uh, newspapers and official petitions and resolved to take the language in them uh, more seriously than progressives had done, which is how he arrived at his sort of more constitutional interpretation of the coming of the revolution. And, uh, you know, Louis Hartz is doing things with Lockean liberalism in the 1950s. But to think that before that, the rhetoric of the revolution which in the last 50 years or so has come to define the revolution in the minds of uh, if not contemporary historians, then certainly the broader public. Uh, before that, it was disregarded as you know, epiphenomenal to the revolution itself. And that's not to say that Balin and Morgan are solely responsible for that, but 
you know, they they participated in uh, setting in motion a process that ended up sort of jumping the historiography rail, so to speak, and seeping its way out into the broader contemporary political culture. Now, I, I don't know if you'd call that an accomplishment or an achievement per se, but, but it's certainly part of the longer term and broader effects of the work on the coming of the American Revolution of that period in general. I think I would definitely point to it as an achievement. When I take my students in methods class through some of the potted version of early American historiography, just to get them interested in the concept of historiography, it's always that defense of pamphlets that they, they pick up on very quickly. And it really does get across to them the idea that the choice of source base is important and that there are different ways of approaching how you actually come to write about history in any particular terms. And I think Balin's use of pamphlets is something that they're able to latch onto and identify quite quickly. Now, obviously, then the question is, how do we go about assessing what it doesn't cover? And I think hopefully that's, that will be what we pick up next in our discussion. But that's attempt at least at creating a systematic approach for the study of ideas through the form of these revolutionary pamphlets, I think does have a lasting influence on the way that all historians think about the motives of, and the motors of political change. Right. I think that's an excellent point. And, I, and it is a very teachable book in that sense, especially in terms of uh, relaying the importance of a historian source base and uh, not only how historians use different source bases to come to different interpretations, but can even derive different interpretations from the same source base. At the same time, if you want to talk about things that Balin is failing to cover, you, you know, you can go back to Roy's calling this interpretation uh, hegemonic or all-encompassing, uh, necessarily uh, hegemonic, then the pamphlet source base becomes quite problematic as it's not including uh, large populations of persons in the colonies at the time who were outside, as it were, of this pamphlet-based discourse. And, uh, I mean, I mean, it, it simply can't uh, account even for the mere existence of loyalists. Yeah, or, or indeed a whole host of other forms of political activity and expressions of political ideology that don't necessarily fall within the pamphlet form. I mean, you mentioned Morgan writing about the Stamp Act slightly earlier than, than Balin, and his source base is considerably broader and more diverse and more encompassing of different types of political activity than the pamphlet. And that's always a question that I ask next, you know, is who really stuck with these pamphlets in the way that Balin asserts they did? Um, what were the other ways that people might have engaged with political ideas and why doesn't Balin talk about those? I think uh, in terms of the revolution, one of the things that, that focusing so closely on pamphlets misses is is the, the really famous crowd actions. I mean, when I when I teach the revolution, I have lots of pictures of uh, people protesting outside of stamp collectors' houses. There's that famous one outside of 
Thomas Hutchison's house. And Balin's focus on the pamphlets kind of misses some of the these types of actions, which also lose some of the drama of the revolution, I think, um, for a lot of people. Um, but then, then again, his student, Pauline Meyer, uh, in her book From Resistance to Revolution, does try to bridge these approaches and talk about how um, crowd actions may have been guided by similar ideology that was that that ran through the pamphlet literature that's that's right i think the strengths of mayor's book really gets to i think one of the central weaknesses of uh ideological origins which is that balin does take these sources on their own terms but he only takes the language of the pamphlets on their own terms. He's mostly interested in how the language of an individual pamphlet fits into this broader matrix and triggers this logic of rebellion, this logic of republicanism that's going to lead to the American Revolution. He seldom reads the pamphlets in the context of what specific individual debate they were involving themselves in. Uh, a pa- you know, a pamphlet in Boston or a pamphlet in Maryland or a pamphlet in Pennsylvania. They're not read really in the political context of their moment. They're read in the context of the language of republicanism. Uh, what McMahon does is she does some of that in her book, but she also brings in crowd actions. She brings in loyalists. She brings in all kinds of different sources that show how Balin's matrix is actually interacting with events on the ground and in many ways being shaped by events on the ground. That's where I think this style of history is its most interesting and its most productive. And it's something that's really missing as I reread this book for the podcast. There is one area, though, where I think that the book does bring in drama, and I think you're exactly right, Mark, there is a lot of drama that is missing from the book if this is a cultural scene that's been developing over 150 years there isn't the sense of driving events, with the exception of um, the note on conspiracy, which appears in the, the middle of the book and really, to me, first starts explaining the dynamic between the colonies and the British Parliament in a way that helps us understand why some of these ideas were so deeply felt. I mean, within that note on conspiracy, Balin's making the argument that Americans become convinced that there is a conspiracy to corrupt the British Constitution and to subvert the liberties of the North American colonies, but that for all the American colonists believe that there is a conspiracy in that way, at the same time, the British Parliament becomes convinced that there's a simultaneous conspiracy taking place in the colonies, that there are certain leaders there that want independence for their own reasons, and that they are pushing it, and that that logic of conspiracy becomes embedded into the political system, the way that both sides start thinking about and interpreting political action. And there, to me, you do get a very dynamic model. But I think it is telling that that's just a note. (laughs) That's not a substantive part of the, or not quite as substantive a part of the book as the other chapters. It doesn't get the full chapter treatment. Uh, But... I think that does tell us something about what's lacking from the approach, even in the way that Balin writes it himself. Right. Well, it's an attempt to explain the question of how do you go from 1763, where colonists are very content 
if not proud of their membership and uh, place within the British Empire, to independence just a little over a decade later. Uh, in many ways, for me, that's the most important question about the revolution, but it's, it's the fundamental conundrum for historians working on the coming of the revolution. Right? Progressives tried to explain it by arguing that there were these uh, long-standing socioeconomic divisions that had given rise to, to very deep-seated class-based antagonisms uh, that had been growing in the colonies for decades before uh, the imperial reform of the 1760s effectively unleashed those conflicts into the uh, broader colonial and imperial political spheres. And Balin is using the idea of conspiracy to say, you know, look, this is why they believe Parliament was out to enslave them so fiercely. If you're the kind of people who are constantly on guard against tyranny and uh, the abuse of power and corruption, then you can see how colonists would perceive the Stamp Act, the Townsend Acts, the Tea Act, and then finally the Coercive Acts as uh, almost perfect examples of exactly uh, what you are so co uh, constantly being on guard against. So, it, I mean, it was easy to see the cumulative effect of these acts as not a program of imperial reform, but a, a conspiracy designed to subjugate colonists and remove from them the, the protections afforded all English subjects by the English common law. And that, for me, is the source of whatever explanatory power the book has uh, in that it offers a plausible solution to the fundamental conundrum of independence. Talking about that developing conspiracy, it's important then to cycle that back to what Balin outlines as this hegemonic thought amongst colonists, which is that power necessarily corrupts. And therefore, as the sense of conspiracy spreads amongst a population that believes that governmental errors are not necessarily just errors of policy, but necessarily part of a specific plan to aggrandize power to government at the expense of the people, that is what ultimately causes the spread of the logic of rebellion and causes Americans to respond to the actions of the British Parliament by deciding to take up arms. And he then looks at the implication of the development of that ideology in a chapter that's called The Contagion of Liberty, where he looks at the way that this spreads not just in terms of a critique of governmental power, but into a whole host of other domestic institutions as well. Now, in thinking about this contagion of liberty and the institutions that it spreads to, I know that most of us here have some quite specific ideas about the limitations of this contagion of liberty. Uh, Mark, I think you wanted to go first on this. Yeah, so I think one of the more um, controversial, at this point in time, arguments that Balin makes in the contagion of liberty chapter is that the revolution in some way forces people to rethink the institution of slavery, that the ideas that are in these pamphlets, um, the ideas about liberty and, and power and power, and even the sort of rhetoric they use of being enslaved by the King or by parliament can, can trickle down and actually start to 
have an effect on actual slavery. But he also he he backs off a little, um, which I didn't quite remember. But I, but in rereading it um, in preparation, at the end of the section on on slavery, he he says he kind of acknowledges that. It does continue. It's hard to you know ignore that fact. Even in the North, there's still slavery for decades. But as he puts it, the burden of proof would now lie with its advocates as opposed to um, the burden of proof lying with those who oppose slavery. And I think this is a really interesting argument because it kind of plays out that way, right? After the revolution, um, slavery does get attacked in certain places, but it also breeds a, a vitriolic and uh, kind of pro-slavery pamphlet literature that, uh, in, you know, in defense of slavery. And so it's kind of an, it's an interesting argument in, in kind of the way the, the pamphlets then sort of backfire. They, they become the tool of the, uh, the, the defenders of slavery in as much as the original revolutionary pamphlets attacked slavery. Well, one of the things that is good in uh, ideological origins about slavery is the fact that Balin talks about slavery as an intellectual category, that, that slavery fits into this Republican framework as, in many ways, the opposite of citizenship. The problem, though, with the fact that Balin takes that category so intellectually seriously is that you really start seeing the fault lines where the delinking of actual lived experiences of actors in history and this idea is expressed in the pamphlet literature, the fact that Balin detethers them, they're not linked in his narrative. When he talks about slavery, you really see that. Because it oftentimes reading this book, slavery is solely an intellectual category. That these pamphleteers solely viewed slavery as a metaphorical construction. And that simply, as we all, I mean, it's simply clear from reading really great books like The Hemings of Monticello and things like that, that these slaveholders, these arch Republicans can just look out their window or look right next to them to the person who's holding the candle as they write these pamphlets is an enslaved African or enslaved African-American. Uh, that, And I think the fault lines of Balin's work, just slavery just casts such a sharp line into the very troubled relationship between, in Gordon Wood's words, the rhetoric and the reality of the American Revolution. And I think that's part of the the limitations of the methodology, just to build on what you said there. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And at times you read Bailey and you think, well, you know, pamphlets never fought a battle. Pamphlets never freed a slave. Pamphlets never whipped a slave either you know they they never instituted that sort of of punishment and the fact that the ideas within the pamphlets almost become disembodies from the the people that were writing them really does lead to some of the odder parts of Balin's rhetoric when when dealing with questions of slavery Right, and I I think that Balin, you know, would acknowledge that yes, pamphlets didn't whip slaves and they didn't burn down Thomas Hutchinson's house, but I think that you know he would respond to that criticism by saying that, uh, you know, those reactions by the colonists, such as the the Hutchinson and Oliver incidents, um, uh, were given meaning by the the circulating rhetoric or or he would say uh, ideology. 
Yes, I I agree with that. I mean, the the point I'd make in in response to that is that that works very well for explaining how people respond to stimuli or why people think that certain events are as troubling as they are. But I think what we're speaking to in this discussion of slavery, and I'll be very interested to hear what you guys think when he broadens this into religion and deference as well, is that it's much less good at explaining what action they take in response to identifying that there is a problem. That it it tells us that these things are a problem, but it doesn't necessarily tell us things that are particularly useful about the way that they responded to those problems. Well, I think it, I mean, I I think it breaks down why, um, why they believe, why they come to believe that independence and completely breaking away from the British Empire makes sense. But I don't think the argument makes, sheds an awful lot of light on the questions of why colonists look to the particular solutions that they did in terms of seeking independence or in terms of instituting new governments. Right. Well, I mean, Roy has made the point that the argument doesn't explain the, the revolutionary response to slavery. I mean, but I think that in explaining the colonists' response during the imperial crisis, I think it does that effectively or, or at least plausibly. I mean, it doesn't tell us all that much about the question of why they chose to institute the new governments that they did. Uh, but that's not really the purpose of the book, or at least not within its immediate explanatory scope, hence the creation of the American Republic, uh, Gordon Wood's uh, dissertation and book. But but I think that Roy is right that slavery is one of the points uh, at which Balin's argument is at its weakest. One of the threads of our discussion today has focused on the fact that really there's quite a lot of scepticism in some ways about the lasting achievements of Balin's argument. And so I thought to bring some sort of conclusion to our discussion, we would want to think about where Balin's book stands in the field today. How has it affected the way that historians think about early America and how central it remains to the stories historians tell about the revolution in general. Ideological Origins of the American Revolution is very widely influential. It's still widely read, particularly in graduate seminars uh, at most institutions today. The book sort of has had two legacies, though. Uh, One is a debate between Balin and his students like Gordon Wood and Pauline Mayer with other intellectual historians um, such as Joyce Appleby about what is the intellectual origin of the American Revolution. Uh, It's a little out of the purview. This debate is a little bit out of the purview of today's episode, but there was an extended debate throughout the 1970s, the 1980s, and early 1990s over the, the role of the Enlightenment and the role of this Republican ideology in the foundation of the American uh, the American Republic. Other people have pushed past Balin and brought up many of the issues that we've talked about today, which is the place of people like women, the place of people like African Americans, the place of the working class in the American Revolution. And this has caused them to move away from the pamphlet literature and move towards 
politics out of doors, move into sort of the lived experience of the American Revolution and how particular people or particular groups lived experience of the revolution caused them to make certain choices. And we can also add loyalists into this. All of these groups who are not at all present in ideological origins of the revolution have gotten so much historical attention since 1967 that sort of Balin doesn't cast that big of a shadow, despite the fact that he remains widely read and influential. That's right. The, the the book had its original moment in the late 60s and early 70s, like Balin had his moment and in that time. And then uh, developments in the field, like n- new social history and then uh, cultural turn, uh, they not only marginalized the book's methodology, but also the, the topic of the book, uh, the, the question of the coming of the revolution. And uh, subsequent generations were not largely interested in that question after uh, the exhaustive republicanism versus liberalism debates of the 70s and 80s. So in some sense, the way in which he was marginalized, uh, you know, was not by his books being replaced by some new, fresher interpretation of the question, but by the rendering of his question irrelevant to uh, subsequent generations of historians. So, I mean, at the same time, the, the central core of the book seems to me to remain fundamental to how we understand the coming of the revolution politically, and uh, and how it is taught to, to many undergraduates. And I think the reason for that uh, also explains in part why we're still talking about the book like this almost 50 years later. It's because there has not been a book that has reinterpreted the question on such a broad scale as Balin attempted in the mid-1960s. Yeah, I mean, the book has been a bit of a punching bag, I think, in the graduate seminars and, and you know, even when I came across it as an undergraduate uh, in some ways it's very easy now to look at it and pick out its flaws but when you're reading a book for a seminar you're doing something in a very different way than constructing a broader research project and even within our discussion today I think a lot of the questions have been but it doesn't include this it doesn't include this it doesn't include this rather than really knowing exactly how an alternative superstructure in terms of explaining the revolution comes in. I mean, partially, I think that's just because the historical field today tends to view action in a very different way from that that Balin does. The idea that there's a hegemonic culture rather than a culture that's predicated on conflict, I think is somewhat old-fashioned and even those books that want to make a big case for the importance of ideas would tend to stress the clash of ideas rather than looking at where ideas held people together. I think Ken makes a really good point about, um, and, and so did Michael, about we've been thinking about what what ideological origins leaves out or something, or what it attempted to replace. And uh, rather than thinking about the sort of its maybe failed legacy of, you know, making ideas uh, hegemonic or, or extra important, I do think he was successful in just getting ideas to matter to political historians um, really broadly. And so instead of thinking about what he 
tries to replace and maybe doesn't replace, it's probably more useful to think, think about what he inserts into the literature in the last uh, decades. And I think that um, just the general idea that ideas and political literature are not inherently propaganda is still that that is uncontested. I think in the literature at this point, people read political ideas, they read them against the grain, they'll read. Uh, newspaper articles and pamphlets, but they take them seriously. And I think this is true even of sort of neo-neo-progressive historians, the people we are, we, you know, the, the, that are preceded by people we pit against Balin. Um, people like Woody Holton um, spend a lot of time reading newspaper articles and essays written by people who had a different point of view maybe than the people that are dominating Balin's narrative or Gordon Wood's narrative, but they're taking these ideas seriously and it's part of building their arguments about how social structure and socioeconomic issues and problems of slavery matter to the revolution. They they build those arguments as much with pamphlets as they do with other sources of evidence. Yes, and I, and I think you're right that you know, books about the revolution that are often considered to have more of a social interpretation. And I'm thinking here books like Gary Nash's Urban Crucible actually have a significantly sharper political content than we would find if we were looking at British or European history in, that's written in the same period, that those ideas really do permeate into what it means to write about the revolution, even when social historians studying other periods where that literature isn't as important don't take those questions of ideas quite so seriously yeah i think that's right and i think to go back to what mark was saying about the return to ideas uh being an important part of the book's legacy that's absolutely right and i also tend to think of it as a, a sort of very early form of a, a history of political culture uh you know it's really blossomed in the last 20 years or so in the early republic period but uh you know, he's always seemed to me to, to, to be grasping to define late colonial political culture. Um, it, you know, of course, he would go on to try to do that even more in The Origins of American Politics, which came out a few years later. But, uh, the, you know, the more recent studies have a much broader conception of what political culture entails and who it includes. But I think that, broadly speaking, I've always read the book as a sort of proto-political cultural history. It's also a precursor to Atlantic history, the way it's practiced today. Most Atlantic historians wouldn't seek to explain the American Revolution in the exact same way that Balin would. They would look more directly at the empire itself, the ways in which the empire enacted, interacted with specific colonies in a much you know, in a very different way. But they would be equally interested in the sort of transmission of ideas from the European side of the Atlantic into the American context and how that transmission changed those ideas and created a, a new ideology that has a relation to what's going on, went on in Europe, but is distinctly American. That is definitely, I mean, Berlin himself is, remains a champion of Atlantic history. Uh, and this is clearly a very early example of it. What I think those sets ideological origins apart from a lot of later Atlantic history, even later intellectual Atlantic history, is it's very much a one-way relationship. Uh, and this is also true of Balin's later work as well. Things tend to come from Europe or even come from Africa and uh, or even South America. And once they are in the modern United States, 
that's the story stops. We're interested now in America uh, and what's going on in the United States. Instead of thinking of it as truly circulation, where all of the different points in the Atlantic Basin, Europe, Africa, South America, and North America are all constantly interchanging ideas, people, goods, uh, and social movements, uh, that, I think, is something that is definitely missing from Balin's discussion of the ideological origins of the American Revolution. Well, I, I, I mean, in a sense, you know, uh, we pointed out that the book was ahead of its time in terms of being a study of uh, political culture as yet undefined or uh, Atlantic history uh, as yet ill-defined and, and maybe a newer form of intellectual history than that, uh, which was done in the 40s and 50s. So to say that it lacks or is missing those things uh, seems to me to be a bit off the mark in that we can't expect Balin to have anticipated uh, in full um, all these uh, developments that his book is in some sense a, a precursor to. So I don't necessarily think uh, that it's a fault that his book doesn't cover uh, Atlantic history the way Atlantic historians would write it now or that it doesn't get as on the ground as the political culture histories of the 1990s and 2000s. In some sense, it's impressive enough that the book anticipated numerous developments in the historical field uh, decades before they would come to a real sense of maturity. And I think it's just another example of the broader legacy of the book beyond uh, just its argument. The, the the one thing that the one I mean the one thing I will say about Balin is that I find it's very easy to criticize his overarching structures and you know that in terms of the way that he views historical activity, it's very clearly out of keeping with the way that most people look at things today and with with good reason. I mean I I, I don't think it emphasizes the importance of change over time in the way that most of the historical writing I like most does. At the same time, every single time you actually ask people to pin down precisely what it is that they have a problem with, it's much trickier to dismiss the book as you can when you're just caricaturing the overall argument. It stands up an awful lot better when looking at each individual part of it than when than when you're looking at the problems of the synthesis that it tries to create. Yeah, I mean, I, I hated this book as an undergraduate. I, I, I really despised it, and it would make me really annoyed to read it. But at the same time, you have to be very precise when explaining why it doesn't work and when it doesn't work. And that's that's a big achievement and that's why anything that starts trying to look at it as systematically as we've done ends up being being more charitable because you have you have to basically disagree with its terms to disagree with the book right the problem too i think is that it's just not the kind of book that you know many historians write anymore specialization, fragmentation in the field has left us with a situation in which most historians are just not inclined to write books these days that make definitive arguments about um, huge topics. And that's uh, partially because any book that attempts to do so is easily criticized for what it's left out, as we've done in this podcast. I mean, some people still do write books like that, of course, but it's far more uncommon today than it was in the first half of the 20th century. 
And so I think that the fact that the book is so out of time and its scope contributes to the reasons why people tend to have the reactions they do to the book. Well, I think Ken hit it on the head. The biggest problem, the book's problem is not that Bernard Balin didn't read these pamphlets and really come to understand their rhetoric and understand how the rhetoric fit together. It's the biggest, the problem is the scaffolding. And that, and that's why it is so easy to, to shoot at the book with a, with a buckshot, but it's impossible to pull the individual threads out because individual threads are very well researched and really good. It's the problem is Balin's nose is too much in the pamphlets and the scaffolding that he's constructed from the pamphlets themselves instead of to the pamphlets is what causes all these problems. Yeah, you know, that's a fantastic point because I remember being at the first night of the McNeil Center Conference, the American Revolution Reborn, which was uh, uh, last year. And that the first night, uh, there, were, there were a lot of people who, who sort of took the opportunity to level criticisms of Balin. And one of them, uh, someone, someone said that, that they said, you know, when I'm in the archive, I don't see anything about republicanism. I don't see anything Balin is talking about in the sources. And now, I mean, of course, they're, they're talking about different sets of sources, but I think that Balin would counter that by saying, you know, you, you wouldn't expect to find uh, such a hegemonic ideology in detail in things like diaries or personal letters, because the fact that it's hegemonic means it doesn't need to be explicated by persons on a quotidian level. Right. I mean, that may be right or wrong, but I think that the story provides an excellent example of what Roy is talking about when he describes the effect the source base and the commitment to the source base uh, has had on the subsequent perceptions of Balin's work. I mean, if this had, if this had just been called the importance of ideas in revolutionary pamphlets, people wouldn't disagree with a huge amount of what it said. Or it could have been the American Revolution and the Republican tradition. Here is one school of thought that existed within the Patriot movement. Nobody, but to be fair to Balin, no one would have read the book. It's, it's also very easy to write things that say, this complicates how we view this school once the school's already been established. It's um, it's much harder to write and say, <laughs> here is here is a small idea about intellectual thought at a time when no one thinks intellectual thought actually matters. You almost have to make the big argument to get people to take it seriously. I think that's right. You know, when I've talked about this, uh, when I talk about the historiography of the revolution with undergrads, you know, when you're offering an interpretation that is directly at odds with the 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 current reigning uh, interpretation or paradigm, you know, you, you have to go all in on your argument. And in some sense, the, the degree to which you have to do that is, uh, you know, correlates to the, the entrenchment of the interpretation that you're challenging, you know, but it's something that as, as a, you know, I try to tell them that as, as a reader of, of a, a work of history, you know, there's something that, you know, you should at least be aware of. That brings us to the end of our discussion today, although I think what's been highlighted in the foregoing discussion is not only how controversial Balin has been, but also how, because of that controversy, many of the questions that he's asked have framed broader discussions about the revolution, even if people have rejected his framework. 
If you'd like to read more about the issues that we've discussed today, please visit bit.ly slash thejuntocast, where we'll be putting up links and references to the books and other articles that we've referenced in our discussion. The Juntocast is a part of the Junto Podcast Network, which also includes The History Carousel, a podcast bringing history full circle with the present. And as ever, if you like what you've heard on the Junto podcast, you should also check out our website, earlyamericanists.com. You can subscribe to the Junto cast in iTunes by searching for the Junto cast. And if you have comments about anything that you've heard today, please drop by our website and let us know. Alternatively, you can email us at thejuntoblog at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the Junto blog. For updates specifically relating to the Junto cast, we are on Twitter with the handle at JuntoCast. As ever, thanks a lot for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>